You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. This Advent season, we have been studying about all kinds of things that pertain to Advent. We've looked at joy and peace, and today we get to look at love. The concept of love generates a lot of interest around the holiday season. So much so that merging the Christmas season with love stories earned companies like Hallmark $147 million in two months in 2022. $147 million. Talk about a scam, right? I mean, my goodness. Any of you who have watched Hallmark movies know that if you've watched one Hallmark movie, you have seen every Hallmark movie in existence. Uh, it's the same plot line. You can argue with me till you're blue in the face. It's fine. Email the church. I won't even see it. It'll go to Ryan. It's fine. But here's the reality. It's the same setup every single time. The city girl is doing her thing until something crazy happens. She then has to move back to her small town for the holidays where she might live with mom and dad or grandpa, grandma or whoever. Where she unexpectedly meets Mr. Wright. And then it's an hour and a half of drama until city girl and Mr. Wright finally go out on a date. $147 million for two months of that just because apparently people think that their Christmas needs a little bit of gushy love stories. And then there's Idina Menzel. If you don't know who that is, uh, she's known as Queen Elsa from Frozen around our house. Uh, she published a Christmas album called Christmas, A Season of Love back in 2019, became really popular. And then, of course, there's Mariah Carey, who uh, apparently still hasn't gotten what she wants because all she wants for Christmas is you. And every year she's going to sing it a bajillion times to remind you she still wants you for Christmas. Um, and then you get older songs, classic classics, like uh, it's, a, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, there will be much mistletoe, mistletoeing. The hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. And so we get this culture that clearly senses that love and Christmas somehow go together. And they're trying to figure out exactly how. Is it Hallmark movies? Is it Mariah Carey? Is it, you know, giving gifts? What, what is it? And I think these examples show two things. First off, it shows that the desire to be loved resides deep in every human heart. We're fallen creatures, but we're not so fallen that we have forgotten our need that we need to be loved. We, we want to be loved. We want to feel loved. We love, receiving, we love receiving the gifts. We love the feeling that we get when others are around us and celebrating us. We love love so much that we will pay uh, these con artists $147 million to watch other people fall in love again and again and again. Um, we know that we need to be loved. Second... There's something about Christmas that provides the perfect opportunity to spotlight love. And I think there's common grace in this. Even those who do not know God see Christmas as the perfect opportunity to give generously, to celebrate with those we love, to practice general goodwill towards humanity. It's the, it's the strangest thing all year round. Uh, just living for ourselves. And then at Christmas, suddenly, the whole world clicks into gear and says, well, well, now's the time to give. You hear messages even on, uh, like Home Alone. It's not about the gifts. It's about the, the giving, right? It's about giving to others. You see that message, and, and I think our culture is actually on to something here. 
What human culture has seen through blurry eyes, Christians have seen with 20-20 vision. Nations worldwide have rightly gotten the message that Christmas is a celebration of love, but they have not yet understood why. They don't understand why. They celebrate better than they know. The world is not wrong in sensing that Christmas is one of the best seasons to celebrate this self-giving, sacrificial love. Now, while Christmas is not about the gushy and predictable Hallmark movies that you're probably watching right now, if you, if you are watching Hallmark movies, we have redemption groups in February. <laughs> you can come and get healing from that. Please sign up. Um, but it's not about those gushy Hallmark movies, right? But it is about a love story. Christmas is about a love story. The world's not wrong about that. They're actually right to associate the Advent season with these feelings of love. And, and somebody has loved us and it's a beautiful thing and something to be celebrated. So let's just ask the question, what is it about Christmas that draws our minds so instinctively to love? As we'll see what the world has sensed imperfectly about Christmas and love, we have seen in the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ. Christmas is a celebration of love because of the one who came and gave himself for us. Now, you might be skeptical and you might be one of those guys like, hey, Hallmark, I mean, these are like the mafia bosses that are creating our uh, holidays and it's all about money. But actually, it might surprise you to know that the connection between love and Advent is not accidental. It actually has been there since before Hallmark. Um, love and Advent actually do go together. Throughout the Bible, God's love is displayed primarily through the Advent of Jesus. You see it in passages like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So there you have it. There's love and Advent together. And then you hear it again in John's first letter. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So you see what John's doing there, both in John 3, 16 and 1 John 4, 9. He's basically saying that love and Advent go together. How do we know that God loves us? Well, he sent his son. We know that God is a loving God. Why? Because he's a sending God. God loves the world and sends his son, and the son coming is undeniable evidence, indisputable proof that God loves the world. And I just think that that's beautiful because Christmas challenges any false notion that God is some malevolent, remote, cold deity who made the world, spun it like a top, and then walked away and said, I'm done. You, you, you guys have it. Christmas challenges that idea. That's not a loving God. A remote God, an evil God, a, a God who turns a cold shoulder to us is not a loving God. But Christmas reminds us that there is a God who loved us so much that he gave and he gave his son. Advent, then, is the ultimate love story in which the holy God loves sinners and out of his overabundant love acts to redeem sinful humanity. You see, we would have no Advent celebration without God first loving us. 
There'd be nothing to celebrate. There'd be no redemption to talk about. There'd be no baby in the manger. There'd be nothing to talk about. Our minds would not drift to love during Christmas season. In fact, there wouldn't even be a Christmas season to talk about. Our minds drift towards love during the Advent season because God's love is built into the very fibers of Advent itself. It is the proof that God loves us. Now, all this may seem straightforward to you, but I think it's something that we need to be reminded of often. We face innumerable challenges that threaten our understanding of God's love, don't we? Can I just have a moment of confession this Christmas? Uh, when I was a teenager, I struggled with sin, just like I'm sure you guys did as a teenager. I struggled with sin. And I had, this, I had bought into the lie that after I sinned, I essentially had to go sit and time out for a few days before God and I could be good again. Like I just felt, is, is, am I the only one that's ever felt that way? That you sin and now, okay, now there's some time that needs to pass. We need to... We need to let some water go under the bridge before God's finally like, okay, I'm, you're good again. You can come out of the corner. You're out of time out. You can come back to me. Like that's how I felt. That, that because I had sinned, I had somehow disrupted in some sort of way my relationship with God. And now that disruption means that I had to wait until God felt all the warm, gushy feelings about me again. Now, hopefully, as a few days went by, he'd start to kind of kick the ball a little bit and go like, yeah, let's bring him out of the corner. That was my feelings about God at that time. And it totally shaped the way that I prayed. Like, I, I, I'd, I'd sin, and then I couldn't even think to speak to the holy God. He's, he's got to be disappointed with me. Right? And so you see that instead of a loving God who sins, in my, who sins his son, uh, I'm envisioning some disappointed father who's cut me off because of my sin. There's some of you who are in that moment with suffering. You haven't, it's not that you're suffering because you've done anything, but in this moment of suffering, you are asking that question, why am I going through this? What did I do? Who among us who has not had serious suffering has not asked that question at some point? What have I done? Is this punishment for something? Is the cancer diagnosis, the weak heart, the failing heart, is, is all this because of something I did 20 years ago and God's finally given me my comeuppance? He's just, he's going to punish me now for all the things I did? And suddenly we begin to get this distorted version of God who turns his back on us in suffering. And yet, it's at Advent and in the incarnation of Jesus that we see perpetual proof that God loves us. The moment we start to think, does God love me, even though I'm a sinner, even though I just sinned, even though I'm in this suffering, even though I'm in this, I, I've, I've rebelled against him in some way, does God still love me? The gospel then turns our eyes to Jesus and says, look, God sent his son. Yes, he loves you. You know what the beautiful thing about, about uh, God is? That whole idea of if I sin, then I'm in timeout and God's drawn away. No, the scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us, right? It's like, while we were still sinners. It, it wasn't when, when we got better. So if that was true of his advent, how much true is it now that God is just the God who loves us? Sinful you, suffering you, whichever you is sitting in here today, God has not withdrawn himself. He is the God who steps near, who steps in, who comes close, who makes himself known. Why? 
because he loves you. Now, we could just wrap up shop there and say, okay, great. Proving the point, right? Advent, love, go together. But actually, the point of the sermon today is not uh, to prove something that you can learn in a Hallmark movie, that Christmas and love go together, okay? Uh, the point is, is to dive in deep and ask the question, why is love and Advent so connected? What does Advent show us about the love of God? And to do this, we're going to camp out in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Probably not the Advent uh, text that you were probably expecting, but that's where we're going to be camping out. It's Hebrews chapter 2. And I invite you to turn there as we begin reading in verses 14 and 15. And here's what the author says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now just to kind of lay out the context here. The author of Hebrews is asking and answering an implicit question. Why did the Son of God become human? Why was it necessary that the infinite Son of God, who dwelt in the heavens, who is the radiance of the Father's glory, why is it that he needed, that the incarnation was necessary? Why is it that he had to take on flesh? Well, throughout Hebrews 2, he gives several reasons. And in this text, he gives us just a glimpse of one of those reasons. And the reason that he says is that we, the children, were in slavery. Now, there's a whole backstory that you have to keep in mind here to understand uh, why we're in slavery. Humanity was not always in slavery, right? Humanity is in slavery now, but it wasn't always that way. When God first created the world and everything in it, it was very good. Do you know what that means? It's the opposite of very bad. Which means that there was no such thing as slavery, right? Humans weren't enslaved. Everything was very good. In fact, it was paradise. Adam and Eve living in the garden, able to hear the sound of God walking in the cool of the day, able to commune with him and live with him and have the pinnacle of life with him, with the source of life. They reigned as types of kings and queens who had the blessed work of making a dominion that would come under the dominion of God and they would reign under God's reign. And yet, now look at it. What happened? How did it break so badly? Why isn't it like that now? We're not the dominion makers we were meant to be anymore, are we? Now we're enslaved to all kinds of things. We can't help but sin, oftentimes. Uh, sinners have to sin. It's just, we're slaves to sin, right? Not only that, we're, we're uh, slaves to death and mortality and futility and decay and all the things that come with life in a fallen world. Adam sinned, and by his sin, he subjected all creation to what we now see, to the death and decay that we now see. So instead of being dominion makers, the serpent has dominion over us. We are in what Colossians says, the domain of darkness, aka slavery. Now, here's the question. Why is that God's problem? You're in sin, you're a slave. How is that God's problem? To understand God's amazing love, you have to understand hard things about God. 
To understand how amazing God's love is, you first have to remember the truth about God. God, as infinite God, get ready for this, needs nothing from his creation. Nothing. When we say that he's infinite, we mean that he's not finite, right? When we say he's perfect, we mean that he's not lacking anything. He's perfect. He's complete in and of himself. As the perfect, self-sufficient creator of all things, there is nothing that humanity or this world could add to God. If you press the Bible on why God made the world, it's not because he needed somebody to love. His self-satisfying, self-sufficient, triune self... The Father was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Father. The Spirit was loving through them as well. And there was this perfect unity of glory and love and amazing, amazing life in the Trinity. There's nothing that creation added to that. If anything, creation is the overflow of that. God doesn't need creation to somehow complete something in himself. So, so, Here's the reality. From a theological standpoint, humanity's fall is not God's problem. It's not God's problem. He made the world. He made it perfect. They broke his rule. He didn't need to save them. There's nothing outside of himself that says, God, your reputation is going to be ruined if you don't. No, no, no. If God stepped back at that moment from the garden, then let's just suppose that he said, I'm not doing another darn thing for these wicked humans. I'm going to let them die. I'm going to let them receive my judgment and the curse. And I'm just going to leave them to it. Guess what? God would still be perfectly just. Why? Because sin deserves judgment. Our fall is not God's problem. So, here's a question. Why then, if there's nothing outside of God that demanded that he step into our plight and save us, what did? You ready? Love. That's it. Why did God, the triune God, plan this amazing redemptive plan to send his son into the world to take on flesh to work this amazing redemption through death and cross and tomb and resurrection and then bring you up to the heavenly places where you would forever live in resurrection with the, the holy God and walk a new heaven and new earth where you would receive the lavish kindness of God forever and ever why would he do that not because he had to not because he signed a contract that mandated him to. Not because it was some duty. But only one reason suffices. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. That's why we have this whole redemptive plan. There's, there's simply no way to illustrate this kind of love. But it, it is worth a try. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it an attempt. Imagine driving down the highway... And an angry driver begins tailgating you. If you've driven in Texas more than a week, you know this happens all the time. Okay? Somebody gets behind you, begins tailgating you. They start flashing their brights. I'm like, dude, that doesn't make me want to go any faster, right? They start flashing their brights. He makes rude hand gestures. He cusses at you as he recklessly passes you. And then my favorite, he acts like he's going to nudge you off the road. And so he passes by and you're like thinking, man, what a jerk, right? Right? 
And then a few seconds later, you see this guy who's acting like a total jerk, about to push you off the road and cussing at you and doing rude hand gestures. See, you see this guy veer off the side of the road, off the bridge, through the guardrail, and into the lake. Car is now face down, hood down, sinking into the water. You stop your car. Guy clearly needs help. But why is that your problem? I mean, he's in the lake because he was acting like a straight-A moron, right? I mean, this is, this is what he was being. He deserves what he got. What's it your, how is it your problem? I mean, you're safe. You uh, have places to go. He's in there because of his own sin. And he hates you anyway. What motivation is going to motivate you enough to get out of your car, jump into that wintry lake, risk your life, and try to save that dude? Nothing but love. Sacrificial, self-giving, unexplainable love for someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, that analogy falls way too short to be worthy of an analogy of the gospel, but it gives you a tiny example of how God has loved us. We have sinned against an infinitely perfect God who is infinitely good. All we deserve is to die in the cold waters of his judgment. The old ancients used to talk about sin as deicidium. It was God murder, right? I mean, if you think about what sin is, it's basically saying, I don't want that God to be God of my life. God, I... I know that all things come from you, but I want to decide for myself what I have. I know that you are the standard of truth, but I want to decide what's true, and I can fabricate my own truth through lies. It's basically ungodding God, dethroning God. That's what sin is. In every single one of us, whatever sin you've done, big or small, it is virtual treason against the high king of heaven. And now, because of your treason, your deicidium, your attempted God murder, you're drowning in the lake of judgment. Why is that God's problem? It's not. But the infinite creator surprises us all. And he jumps into the depths of our cold humanity takes on our flesh and blood and experiences everything that pertains to humanity save sin. Experiences everything it means to be a human. And all this because of one reason. He's inherently good. And inside of him he is motivated by love because he, he is love. So that's why we celebrate Advent. And at Advent we celebrate the fact that an infinite God who needs nothing, became a man to save sinners who deserve nothing. That's the first two truths that you have to see about love at Advent. God needs nothing. He didn't need to save you for some, some sovereign reason. God needs nothing. You deserve nothing. And yet we get to the third point. He needs nothing. You deserve nothing. But he gave everything. Isn't that just mind-blowing to you? I mean, just, just think about that. Needs nothing. No reason for him to step in. No reason for him to jump into the icy cold waters of our depravity. 
and we deserve it. And then he throws off everything and plunges into the depths of humanity. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why does the author say children? Now, I, I know you weren't looking for a Greek lesson this morning, but you're going to have to forgive it. I'm the theology guy. It's kind of expected, okay? Um, there's other things he could have said. He could have said something like, since the people, ton leon, share in flesh and blood. He could have said, since mankind, ha anthropos, share in flesh and blood. He could have said, there's a, a number of options he could have chosen in the Greek. But instead, he said, since the little children, ta paidea, share in flesh and blood. Why, why choose that word? Out of all the options that you have, mankind, people, uh, nations, whatever, why choose little children? Well, on the one hand, I, I think he's trying to show us what we are like. We are like weak, vulnerable children who need salvation, who need help. But there's something else. I think he's showing us just how low the sun condescended. You ready for this? The Son of God did not just become a man. The Son of God became an infant, a paideia, a child. Weak, vulnerable, has to be burped after he eats, child. That's the condescension. I just, I, it blows my mind. That he didn't just become like a human. Because I'm sure that God in all of his infinite power and wisdom. He could have made a microwavable pre-made body adult Jesus. That just appeared out of nowhere. And then son of God inhabits that adult body. No he decided in all of his infinite wisdom. That he wasn't going to send a man but a baby. For unto us a child is born. All of his infinite wisdom. Why? To show the level of condescension. Think about who Jesus is. The Nicene Creed says that the Son of God is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. Can I just put all that in a nutshell for you? He's God. In all the fullness that God is. All the glory associated with God. All the eternality, the omniscience, the omnipotence, the omnipresence. All of those divine attributes wrapped up, summarized in Jesus before the world began. Son of God, fully God. And yet, that divine son is the one who condescended so low that he was wrapped in swaddling cloth and laid in a manger. I mean, we're talking about the God who Solomon said, the highest heavens can't contain you. Suddenly takes on flesh and he can fit in a feeding trough. It's amazing condescension. We couldn't invent a bigger condescension, right? Where, where we go from the highest to the lowest. We, I mean, none of us could do that. Only God could do that kind of condescension. Uh, C.S. Lewis was meditating on the incarnation and um, he was taken up by this fact that there's God who's sitting in the highest, who's self-sufficient, self-satisfied, doesn't need anything from mankind. And listen to what he says in his book called Miracles. He comes down 
Down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. Down into humanity. Down further still to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Do you hear what he's saying there? The incarnation the Advent season, the Christmas we celebrate, is worth celebrating because it tells the story of a God who stoops. A God who stoops! Dwells in the highest places, comes underneath your plight. Becomes like a baby. And not just, I mean, you just think about everything he could become. He could become like a, like a man. And a royal man, and a fully grown royal man who rides through the split heavens and shows all who he is. But no, he came as a baby. Not just as a baby, as a homeless baby. Born in the little town of Bethlehem. Down, 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 down the highest God goes. To stoop underneath your frail humanity and then to lift you back up so that you could sit in the heavenly places with him. Isn't that beautiful? All of this reminding you there's something greater than Hallmark here. There's a gospel that is at work and unfolding and, and it's telling the story of the God who emptied himself without changing any of his divinity. And he's taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And then dying a death. Even the death on a cross. Cannot begin to fathom that kind of condescension. And yet highest God comes to the lowest of men. And lifts them up with him. So. Here's the gospel at Christmas. God needed nothing. You deserve nothing. God gave everything. But here's the last point. God gave everything for you. One of the things I want to do this morning is I just want to make it unambiquitous, right? Like it's, it's one thing for us to say that God sent his son for us. I want you to sit in your seat and feel the magnifying glass from heaven that is narrowed in on your heart. Jesus came for you. Yes, for us. Yes, for the world. Yes, for the nation. But for you. You're part of that. He came for you. He stoops down and becomes a baby. And he does all this. Why? For you. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And we hear echoes of the Bible in this. He's, he's basically saying he came to die 
so that in dying he could defeat death. You hear Genesis 3.15 in that? He's going to crush the serpent's head and the serpent's going to crush his heel. And what happens when the serpent bites the heel? Well, the person dies. It's, it's a substitutionary sacrifice at play. You also hear Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Son of God came from the highest heaven to die. And no other sacrifice would do. Nobody else could make it but him. It's only Christ in flesh that could make that kind of sacrifice to serve as a propitiation, as a satisfaction for God's wrath. He says it himself in, in Hebrews chapter 10, 5. Jesus says, Sacrifices and offerings you, God, have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. A body to do what? Well, so that Christ could for all time make a single sacrifice for sin. This is going to seem elementary to some of you, but Jesus, the Son of God, High Prince of Heaven, became a baby so that he could have blood vessels and arteries that could bleed, skin that could tear, a head upon which they would put the crown of thorns, a back that would be ripped apart, Hands that would be nailed to a cross and shoulders that would bear it for you. In his divine nature, there's no way he could experience death. Because God can't die. He's immortal. That's one of the things we say. He's immortal. That's an attribute of God that we say. So in his divinity, the son can never experience death. And if he doesn't experience death, then he can in no way die for us. Here's the simple theology of it. Nobody no sacrifice, no sacrifice, no salvation. So what does he do? Most high God in all of his divinity adds to himself, takes on to himself a second nature, humanity. One person, two natures. Something you'll learn in the institute called the hypostatic union. Why? So that he as the perfect full God man could bleed for you could die your death. And in return, as a consequence, know what love is. All of it. Maybe in the major. Also that we can know what love. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And it doesn't end at the cross. It goes much further than that. It goes into eternity. It's not just that he took on a flesh so that he could die for us. No, he took on flesh so that he could die, raise again, and then guess what? Serve as our high priest. He says in Hebrews 2.17 that he became like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He took on flesh so that he could experience what it was like to be tired, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be in pain, and to die. And to be tempted even by Satan himself. And yet in all the time he is without sin. Why? So that he could become the perfect candidate that welcomes you to the throne of grace. Where you can receive mercy and find grace to help you in time of your need. That's why he took on flesh. The baby in the manger prepares us for the cross. The cross prepares us for the tomb. The tomb prepares us for the resurrection. The resurrection for the ascension. And the ascension tells us that Jesus in his flesh still stands as your high priest. Sympathizing with your weaknesses. And loving you. Why? Because he loves you. That's why. As Athanasius wrote, 
we were the purpose, the reason of his embodiment. And for our salvation, he so loved human beings as to come to be and appear in a human body. Advent celebrates the God who gave everything for us for becoming like this, like us. And that's why Advent and love go together. Advent reminds us that there's a God who needed nothing but loved sinners who deserve nothing by giving everything for us. God needs nothing. You deserve nothing. He gave everything and he gave everything for you. Now what? I, you know, I would so love to give you a list of top 10 things that come, you know, it, it, it would be so simple if it was contractual, right? Jesus loved you, now here's what you do, okay? But that would kind of cheapen the gospel of Christmas, don't you think? The gospel of Christmas is that for God so loved the world. So here's the first application. The paramount, there's other things to do, yes, absolutely. But the first and foremost thing you should do when you hear the message that God so loved the world is this, be loved by God. Can you, can, you, can you just hear that application? Be loved by God. Receive it. He loves you. The greatest obstacle to you living in the love of God is not your sin. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. It's not your sin. It's not your imperfections. It's not your limitations. It's not your mortality. It's not your suffering. None of those are challenges to the love of God. The biggest challenge to us receiving and basking in and enjoying the love of God is our lack of faith to receive it. That's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's amazing love should inspire you to believe and have faith that when God says that he loves you, he really does love you. Now you might hear that and you might say, listen dude, there's no way God could love me. You have no idea what I've done. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did two weeks ago, two years ago. You don't know what I've said to people. You know what I think. How can you say that God loves me? Can I just give you freedom today? To experience the love of God and receive it and to see it in the person of his son. Whom he sent from high heaven to take on flesh for you because he loved you. That's his proof. Whatever else you might say, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, God's love isn't contingent on any external force. It's not contingent on you. God loves you because God is love. It's inherent to his own nature. God loves you. Now receive it. Love it. Bask in it. And while you're being loved by God, take it one step further and love others. Scripture says that one of the most natural ways that we know that we have experienced the love of God is that we give what we've received. Jesus says this, by this we know love, that he laid his life down. Uh, John says this in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Now listen to this. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You can't give what you don't have. Those presents under the tree, all the Christmas cookies you're making for other people mean nothing without an understanding that you have been given to by the Savior. 
It's his gift that has backed all of our giving. It's his love that has backed all of our love. So as you're being loved by God, let that love from God overflow into love for others and do exactly what Jesus said in John 13, 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What a perfect time this Advent season to let your life be a miniature reenactment of what Jesus did on Golgotha. What a perfect time for you to stoop low to come under people's problems who it's not your problem but to incarnationally step in in their lives and love them sacrificially because you have received no less from Jesus and so as you're being loved by God and as you're loving others I also want to welcome you to celebrate there's a good reason we eat cookies and drink eggnog at Christmas there's a reason why joy is also associated alongside love. Because Christmas is something worth celebrating. Some of you just need to be told it's okay to take off the sour face and the bitter heart. And to celebrate that Most High God loved you so much that he stepped into your humanity, died for you, rose again, and has promised that you're going to dwell with him for all eternity. So it's okay for you to eat the Christmas cookie with your friends. It's okay. As Christians, we should feast happier. Laugh louder. Sing. Belting it out at the top of our lungs. Why? Because God came down from heaven for me. So that I could live with him. And that's the Christmas story we're celebrating. And today we get the great joy of celebrating through communion. Uh, Some of you have never had communion during Christmas, but what a perfect time. Typically, we take communion during Easter, and we're we're thinking about how Jesus' cross points to the broken body and the spilt blood. But so does the manger. That was why Jesus became a baby, was so that he could break his body and spill out his blood so that you could be forgiven. We have communion stations here, so if you weren't able to grab it, uh, we're going to take it together here in a minute. During this next song, we want you to feel free to get up and get one, but we first want to let you know who communion is for. Communion is for those who are in a relationship with Jesus. If you take communion without having first taken Jesus, it does you nothing. It's not mystical. It's not magical. It doesn't, it's not a potion that's going to somehow make your life better this Christmas. It's not any of that. It's symbolic of what Jesus has done for us. And so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we ask that you first take Jesus before you take his supper. And then we believe it's for those who are in a right relationship with God. Again, if you're just taking the Lord's Supper because the communion because you think it's a good thing to do, it does nothing for you. It's all about stirring your thoughts and your heart and your affection up to see the God who came and took on a body so that you could celebrate this feast. And so during this song, we just ask that you pray. We ask that you connect with the Lord. We ask that you examine yourself. And in examining yourself, that you prepare your heart to rejoice. We get a little glimpse of the feast today that's still to come in Jesus because he became a man and died for our sins. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that this communion time will not be wasted, but that it will remind us that we have bread to break and wine to drink because there is a Savior who took on a body and blood for us. Father, I pray for every person in this room 
for their joy, for their celebration of the gospel, and for them to experience deeply your love which has come down from highest heaven. You needed nothing from us. There's no reason for you to step in and you did. We deserved nothing and yet you gave everything for us. Let us now rejoice and celebrate and worship you, the God of Christmas, the God of the Advent, the God who came down. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.